0: Suzanne Kite presents Indigenous Listening, a lecture on soundscapes, musicologies, and traditions in her own work and that of artists including Post-Commodity and Rebecca Bellmore, and Everything I Say is True, a multimedia narrative work that uses family ephemera and history to consider concepts of truth in relation to Oglala Lakota knowledge systems. Suzanne Kite, a.k.a. Kite, is a Southern California-based Oglala Lakota artist, performer, and composer working with electronics, sound, text, and video. This event was part of Holy Uli, a living indigenous space featuring work by indigenous artists and collectives based in Kulin Nation territory, curated by Luli Eshragi and recorded on the 6th of May 2017.
1: So we're really, really lucky tonight to have a lecture called Indigenous Listening and a performance, Everything I Say is True, linked to the video installation work here by Suzanne Kite. And already we've been hanging out for a day and my accent has changed. Um, Suzanne Kite is an Oglala Lakota performance artist, visual artist and composer from Southern California, with a BFA from Arts in Music Composition and an MFA candidate at Bard College's Milton Avery Graduate School. Kite's work includes performance, drawing, animations, choreography, movement, electronic productions, arrangements for large ensembles, sound sculpture, gallery installation, text scores, and video compositions. Recently, Kite has been developing a body interface for movement performances, carbon fiber sculptures, immersive video and sound installations, and has recently launched the experimental electronic imprint on her radio, uh, records. Sorry. We met um, in January, February of last year at the Banff Center's Indigenous Visual and Digital Arts Residency, and it's an Im- immense pleasure for Liquid architecture, architecture and myself to have you here. Please welcome Suzanne Kite.
2: Hello. Thank you for having me, Lily. I'm is how you say good evening in Lakota. And I'll preface this by saying I'm not a Lakota speaker, but I'd like to be. Um, so I just like to start with my perspective because it's hard to talk about listening without talking about who you are and who you are as the listener. So I started off as a listener um, being, I'm Oglala Lakota, but I was adopted at birth. So I was raised a um, by a non-Oglala family and I grew up playing violin, playing klezmer violin and classical violin and I eventually decided I wanted to be a composer um, but my listening has taken a very hard turn from classical violin listening. So all of my work comes from a place of yearning to be closer to my people, my ancestors and understand what is wrong with our world and to hopefully find a way to fix it. A lot of my work has been focused on grasping what truth and belief mean and what is possibly in what is possibly a pre- and post-apocalyptic world, a world where many of the answers I seek lie only in books. Another aspect of my work is to find ways to enact truth and belief in my practice. To me, enactment requires the body sensing within a location, within ways of knowing, and within time because a lot of listening to sound means engaging with time as well. So that's where the practice of listening emerges for me. I don't think I need to explain to you all of the kinds of silence I hear. I feel personally that as one separated both physically um, and spiritually from locations where my people are, I can only imagine what it was like to hear, on a most basic level, long ago. Um, Long ago in Lakota translate to Ahani, which also translates to always. So Ahani means long ago and always. I feel very much that the past and present are inseparable and that the contemporary artworks of our peoples and other indigenous peoples contain the cosmologies that we hope they do. They did long ago and they always will. So with that, to me a lot of my questions lie in this word, big English word, epistemology, which to me means the way we know what we know. How do we know what we know? I know I know what I know, but how do I know what I know? You know what I mean? <laughs> In Lee Hester and Jim Cheney's paper, Truth and Native American Epistemology, which I put on the table over there, um, they suggest that one of the main differences between Indian, um, I'll preface this, I refer to Native Americans as Native American, Indian, um, indigenous, Oglala, Sioux, it's, it's all the same to me. Um, the difference between Indian ceremonial worlds and Western ceremonial worlds is the intention of these worlds to be responsibly true. Indigenous worlds are built on the basis of an ethical epistemological orientation of attentiveness, or as Native Americans tend to put it, respect. Rather than an epistemology of control, Hester and Cheney examine these opposing epistemologies by drawing on Vine Deloria Jr., amazing author, you should check him out, and his views of Native American approaches to knowledge, They cite Deloria's referencing to Black Elk's explanation, which I have up here, of how Oglala received the white buffalo calf woman. This they tell, Black Elk said, and whether it happened so or not, I do not know. But if you think about it, you can see that it is true. The account of the buffalo calf woman is not necessarily to be understood in literalist or historical terms, the account to be understood as a depiction of one element of the ceremonial world in which the Oglala Lakota live. And we must always consider the ways that a particular story or experience might instruct us, because stories and experiences are to be understood as having inexhaustible depth. And it is through this inexhaustible depth I want to launch into listening. All right. Powwow recordings on YouTube. i got to start from home. So... I want to start with what would seem basic listening, but has become so much more in the 21st century because we have access to technologies to interact with our communities in absolutely new ways. All right, let's listen to a little bit of the Porcupine Singers. (laughs) We have a lot to get through, so I apologize to not stay on them longer. Um, So let me read a little bit. So there's a really great book by Sievert Young Bear where he talks about what it's like to write powwow songs, to be a powwow singer. He writes... Another important part of singing in our traditions is making up songs. It takes many years of singing or a long tradition of singing in the family. Sometimes you just hear a melody on the wind or in your memory or an emotion causes you to start humming or you're looking at clouds or some hills and a pattern in them gives you a melody. The words, by comparison, are provided by something that's already happened or is going to happen or you're aware of in advance. In both cases, you know that you won't have that many lines to say something because most of our Lakota songs are short. So, and on and on. All right, another thing on YouTube is peyote singers. So, this video is very interesting. It's shared with me by my friend Nathan Young, who points at these hats in these videos. If you look at peyote, there's a huge peyote community on YouTube, which a lot of the times in our cultures, um, there's a very strict bar, but you don't share, overshare um, religious songs and because these spiritual things need to be protected, but for some of the songs are different on YouTube. Um, like in this video, you see the pea, um, the hat. Uh, the peas is for peyote, um, and these hats are significant as well. Um, let's listen to a little bit of this. <laughs> That's just how it is for a long time. Um, That's what it sounds like. Amazing stuff, really extremely hypnotic. All right, new compositions Facebook. Facebook is probably to me the most powerful and like Native American tool I have possibly come across. It's through that that I've learned, I've found my entire family. uh, I've found access to my culture in ways I could not, mostly through humor, because the only way I've really engaged with Native Lakota humor is through meme pages. I particularly like Teepee Creepin' Humor, the group. I like it a lot. All right, these girls I found on Facebook. um, They're the Bearhead Sisters. I think they're from Alberta. Um, They're not well-known at all, and they're amazing.
3: games because you know that I'm missing you
2: hey, oh, hey, oh, hey hey all right so clearly very contemporary it's a melding of you know uh, traditional singing like like most indigenous artwork you know there's a bridge between the past and the present you know they're very very close so this one is hilarious Northern Korea is one of the greatest groups. Not only is this use Facebook, it's about Facebook. So, it's funny, but that's that's serious, you know what I mean? Like, if you saw that, you would also write a really deep song about it. It's, it's rough. All right, let's go into pop music, since this is almost going straight into there for us. Um, there's a lot of really good indigenous pop music, especially coming out of Canada, but um, super well-known tribe called Red. I mean, I think they were here recently. I've never seen them, but. I limited myself. I know I want to watch the whole thing, but (laughs) I cut it off on purpose. All right, Tanya Tagak, if you don't know about her, she is killer, absolutely killer. And you can clearly hear how she's marrying two genres.
0: So
2: that's called throat singing. put it in right at the solo, because I like the solo, but um, it's, it gets very contemporary pop music. Um, I highly recommend her. All right, Alisa Harkins is a friend of mine, but I think what she does with uh, transcribing traditional Cherokee melodies and then turning them into pop music and being self-critical about that is, is great. And she also does uses movement. so fast so let's go move on from pop music and talk about something else which is Leanne Simpson so Leanne Simpson wrote a book that's on the table over there it's called Islands of Decolonial Love which is a poetry book that I actually only read just recently and it seriously changed my life I, I didn't know that you could write autobiographically in, in such a way um, but another amazing thing she did with that book is if you go to the publisher's website like almost half of the poems um are set to music that she helped write
3: Bonjour Odena Shke It's been a long time Oh, ah, Odenabe. Oh, ah, Odenabe. It's it's this way. I can feel my lateral line drawing forward. Let me, let me, let me taste you. That feels
2: good on my gills. It's hard to cut that off, but Odonabe is a river, and um, she's speaking in her traditional language. Really beautiful. You should check. You should check her out, Leanne Simpson. All right. So now we're going to get to something like amazing, which is post commodity, which is uh, I, I have to read their bio, their bio to you because. It is intense. All right, post-commodity. <clears throat> they describe themselves as an interdisciplinary arts collective comprised of Raven Chacon, Cristobal Martinez, and Kate L Twist. They do a lot of large-scale installations, and all of them are also performers of sound. So here's what they write about themselves. Post-Commodities art functions as a shared indigenous lens and voice to engage the assaultive manifestations of the global market and its supporting institutions, public perceptions, beliefs, and individual actions that comprise the ever-expanding multinational, multiracial, and multi-ethnic colonizing force that is defining the 21st century through ever-increasing velocities and complex forms of violence. Um, I didn't include a clip of their album because I only own it on vinyl. I know, really cool. Um, but um, this album, the only album I own of theirs is called We Lost Half the Forest and the Rest Will Burn This Summer, which in that lecture that I mentioned from Candace Hopkins, uh, she talks extensively about this, and that's available on Vimeo. Um, I should have included a little bit. So they write, this album, combining Western classical instruments and performers with their own Southwestern electronics, Post Commodity's third full-release album, uh, recounting the ever-cycling decay of a, forest, of a desert drought from the view of its flora and fauna. The jacket's printed and embossed with ash. Really beautiful. But I, I love this album, but I love this installation more. Um, It actually was here in Sydney, at the Sydney Biennial. Um, But before it was here, it was in, I think it was in Arizona in 2009. It is a normal white box gallery with a concrete floor. And in the center of the floor is a square cut out of the concrete, perfect square. And underneath this concrete base is dirt. And there are microphones throughout the room, but there's one microphone pointed, floating over the dirt. And this is what they say about a piece called Do You Remember When? site specific intervention. Cut concrete, exposed earth, light, and sound. The whole and exposed earth of Do You Remember When? becomes a spiritual, cultural, and physical portal, a point of transformation between worlds, from which emerges an indigenous worldview engaging on a discourse on sustainability. And then they have a block of concrete on a pedestal. The foundation of the institution, constructed on top of tribal lands, functions as a trophy, celebrated indigenous intervention in opposition to a Western scientific worldview. The closed-circuit audio broadcast, which is, they had a peeposh social dance song playing throughout the space, and then microphones were picking it up, so basically it's like a feedback loop, uh, performed by the collective, provides the psychosocial soundtrack of the transformation process. The work shifts the sustainability from a focus dominated by Western science to a balanced approach inclusive of, indig- inclusive of indigenous knowledge systems. So basically, to me, what is so poetic about this is when you pull... I mean, it's of course this has been done in many ways by many artists, but... It's specifically Indigenous to pull up the concrete of the floor and sing to the ground, the way it is meant to be sung to. All right, so Nathan Young, another good friend of mine. So he was a member of Post Commodity. They've had um, other members in the past. He's based in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's Delaware, Pawnee, Kiowa. Much of his work is also installation based, but mainly, again, he's a performer of sound. and engages with sound making and listening. He has a lot of pieces that I love, um, but I wanna talk about one that was installed at Bard College for his thesis. I'm sure he would not like a talk about his college thesis, but that's okay. So I'll read some of these things that are written. Um, He was translating a nearly dead language. So some of the things that are said are, I want to say a few words. I'm a little bit Delaware. He really was here. Are you a full blood? You should think about it. When the world was new, something strange has, has been placed here. What do you want to know? What is happening? What did that dog say? How did you come here? Do you want to try it? Squirrel soup and oatmeal tastes good. Beans, lettuce, and corn. My favorite line. When he talked to Delaware, he talked incorrectly. He cannot say anything. Add a little bit of this sound installation. All right. Before I make all sense of these, I need to talk about some superstars of North American indigenous art, like James Luna. This is his own video. In
1: 1987, at the Museum of Man in San Diego, California, I premiered an installation performance, the artifact piece, that was to change my art career, establish my place in contemporary art history, and opened up mainstream art for other multicultural artists. This installation performance dramatically illustrated the lack of inclusion of contemporary native cultures in American society. This artwork was cited as one of the important artworks produced in the 1990s and was included in the historic 1990 Decade Show in New York City.
2: All right, so James Luna, he's a performance artist and to me, an important part of his practice is he uses the mode of band leader in his performances and constantly uses music references and uses his body as well in many ways. So I want to talk about this piece where his body is, his body is installed. Artifact piece, 1987. Richard Hill writes on, of the Artifact piece, Our impulse is surely the same as an unnamed Indigenous visitor to the exhibition who Luna claims stood beside him and said, Get up. Hey, get up. Um, when I read this quote, I, I, f- I immediately felt that I understood Indigenous performance as a whole not just because it's performance, but because it is Indigenous listening. Because so many of our traditions require a kind of listening that I don't believe has words in the English language. I was struck by trying to imagine what it's like to be that Indigenous listener, to approach this body that's installed, that's somehow near dead, that's surrounded by its own records. His record collection was displayed. Um, And to me, the most important listening part of this is to hear his breathing on the table in front of me Um, and I I doubt I don't know if James Luna thinks this or was planning but that's I cannot get out of my head to have a uh, body lying there breathing the sound of that Um, so now I want to talk about Rebecca Belmore and her piece which has a very long name So, first of all, Rebecca Belmore is an artist currently living in Vancouver, British Columbia, whose work crosses the boundaries of the listening body, similarly to these other people. So, this is called, I don't want to pronounce pronounce it wrong, so the English is speaking to their mother. So, Jolene, before I go on to Jolene Rickard, oh yeah, Jolene Rickard writes, Belmore's sound performance, speaking to their mother, gave voice to Aboriginal people across Canada, constructed as a giant megaphone, reminiscent of birch bark cones used for moose calling in northern Ontario, this piece opened up a space for Aboriginal people to speak and be heard. It created a site for the recognition of the historical erasure of Aboriginal voices and empowered Aboriginal people to speak to all of their relations, as well as the living cosmos. So this, is, this other piece I want to briefly go over is very powerful. It's another Rebecca Belmore piece. Um, it's called Vigil. Jolene Rickard writes, in an Amnesty International report in 2004, the report Stolen Sisters accuses Canadian authorities of turning a blind eye to the disproportionate level of violence against Indigenous women. Townsend Golt describes this piece, Vigil, and Belmore's response to the tragic deaths of the unnamed in her text, The Name, The Unnamed. The performance included all of the elements of a classic ritual, establishing bounded liminal space, cleansing a and purification which puts the protagonist in a vulnerable or dangerous position their body marked out in some way or identified by special clothing endurance, repetitive action release, a closing sequence returning to the real world in vigil, in vigil the m- women's first names are written in black marker all over Becca Belmore's arms as cues prompting her to yell them out at the top of her voice after each name to draw a rose with its thorn through her closed lips in the performance, crimes against the body, the native body, the women's, woman's body, are embodied, enacted by, or inscribed on her own body as if in an act of atonement. <sighs> Candace Hopkins' lecture, Sounding the Margins, A Choir of Minor Voices, she outlines sounds of contemporary Indigenous artworks, protests, their drumming and dancing, describing them as a collective crying out. Belmore's work to me encompasses the contemporary Indigenous listener who hears the cries of her people, of the land, and cries back, not just with her voice, but with her entire being. And I wanted to also talk about um, an artist who's not a sound artist, who's a choreographer. Amongst many things, poet, writer, and artist, um, Tanya Luke and Linklater is a choreographer whose work to me highlights a form of listening with the body. Again, similar to James Luna's piece, I cannot help but imagine or hear clearly in my mind the sound of two bodies touching and holding positions like these. So Bill Stover is my grandfather. Um, He is not a sound artist, Um, but I I wanted to talk about him a little bit. My current performance work, which I'll do next, um, interrogates the tension between belief and truth with the goal of making a case for the concept of responsible truth, i.e. respect. I see evidence of responsible truth throughout the ceremonial worlds of the Lakota, especially sweat lodge ceremonies led by my grandfather, Standing Cloud or Bill Stover, have revealed particular instances of this belief in practice. When I ask my grandfather how he hears a song he has never heard before, he points to his vocal cords. He hears them while singing them. The action of hearing, singing, remembering, channeling, improvising, composing are collapsed into a single event in time. So this is a symbol in a bunch of the videos in my piece. Um, and I will in- now introduce this piece. It's titled, Everything I Say is True. This is um, a body of work that is commissioned by the Walter Phillips Gallery, and some of it is installed here, document, six documents and an installed video, where I attempt to reconstruct the nonlinear narrative of both my family's history through investigating our understanding of time. The full body of work includes a dress, installation, sculpture, documents... And these documents installed here um, make reference to multi-generational experiences of adoption within my family. I'm trying to use these Lakota storytelling structures as a lens through which to see modern Lakota mythologies, which include government interference and tribal sovereignty, the continued obfuscation of evidence of FBI murders on Lakota land in the 1970s, the established historical facts of the counterintelligence program, and current government policies, especially those around indigenous protests like in North Dakota. I see a long-running connection between these concepts of manifest destiny and contemporary Lakota mythology. A long chain of events, a story that can be traced through these documents, through maps and data, lies, conspiracy, imagination, and art. I see a multiplicity of mythologies, personal, tribal, historical, As continuing to exist in the contemporary storytelling of the Lakota and to conclude this section I see my performance research um, and interest in indigenous epistemology or ways of knowing as deeply related and interdependent. These questions related to being part of a territorial diaspora so disconnected from a homeland and its relationship to the concept of truth because These kinds of truths require a body to exist within and with knowledge of our world. I think there's something deeply embedded in our indigenous epistemologies that we enact through performance, through movement and sound and listening, that go beyond truth and belief. I think the unifying factors in all of these performances is that not only do they engage with listening, they engage with a type of bodily listening thats nearly I think is nearly indescribable. I have not found the words to describe what it means to experience a performance, to um, listen to something that is unlistenable, to hear what is unhearable. And I think that these are ways to become closer to our indigenous epistemologies that are sometimes completely unknowable.
0: Thank you. This recording was produced by Mara Schreffager for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Boonwurrung and Wawurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more head to liquidarchitecture.org.au.